Welcome to the Sunday School class for Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that I can share this time with you today. For this fall quarter in Sunday School, we are studying the Ten Commandments. What role do these laws play for us today? Last week, we began looking at the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt make no carved images. Well, today we want to continue our look at those two commandments, looking especially at how we keep or break those commandments in our modern lifestyle. But before we begin with the lesson, I want to start with the prayer that Paul prays in Philippians chapter 1. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. After World War II, a new religion was discovered among some of the islanders in the South Pacific. Now, these were people who had literally been in the Stone Age before World War II began. They had had almost no contact with the outside world, no concept of technology like cars and radios and airplanes. And then the war makes their islands a valuable military asset, and it's going to be fought over by the Japanese and by the Allied forces. And their world is invaded by all of these soldiers with all of their modern supplies and equipment. Now, the soldiers, they didn't have to forage for food. They didn't have to grow their own crops. They would simply send out a message. And all of this wonderful cargo, this food and supplies, would arrive by plane, providing them with everything that they needed. And so the islanders, some of them at least, developed a religion of their own known as the cargo cult. Now, the idea was if the islanders could hold the proper ceremonies, then they too could receive these shipments of wonderful cargo. So they would build replicas of airplanes and airports out of bamboo and, and brush and twigs. They would make the noises that the airplanes would make. All of this in, a, in an attempt to to mimic what they saw going on around them. If it worked for the soldiers, why wouldn't it work for them? We look at this and we think, well, how foolish making the sound of jet planes in front of your airplanes made of bamboo. This is never going to work. We laugh and we feel superior, but then we go off to worship at our own idols. Idols, which are really just a more sophisticated version of bamboo airplanes. We put our faith and our trust in idols which are just as unreal. God makes idolatry the basis of the first two commandments. Now, these are the first two of the ten words that we talked about. And it emphasizes how important they are. The most common sin that Scripture warns us about is idolatry. Philip Yancey writes, Idolatry ranks as far and away the most common topic in the entire Bible. Thomas Bradford writes about this problem of idolatry, that uh, it might be the principle that's most consistently violated by God's people. 
And this is because the insidious nature of idolatry shows up in ways that no one expects. Idolatry is alive and well today. It was not just a problem for the ancient Israelites. John Calvin wrote, The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. What he's saying is there's something in our human nature, our fallen nature, that continually raises up these false gods. Now, how idolatry manifests itself, how it's practiced, this has changed. We no longer have physical idols of gold and silver or stone. Uh, Our idols are a bit more sophisticated. The idols take the form of worldviews and philosophies and attitudes and beliefs. But the spirit of idolatry, the desires, the aims of idolatry, these are still very much with us today. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So here, Scripture is defining idolatry as greed, or, depending upon the translation, as covetousness, unbridled desire. And this is the essence of idolatry. We are setting up gods that we can control and manipulate to give us what we want, to provide us with the things that we desire from life. When I set up an idol, my worship is centered around me. I choose when and where and how to worship. I choose who to worship. And my worship is designed to get me what I want. So idolatry really is setting myself up as God. Uh, Bob Kellerman writes, I start by saying God is not good enough for me. Then I conclude I am sufficient for myself. Augustine, one of the most, writes that one of the most devastating effects of sin is seen in the way that we become curved in on ourselves. God is eliminated from our world as we turn inward to worship the creature rather than the creator. God himself tells us that he is a jealous God. He will not allow the worship of anything or anyone else. God's jealousy is a function of his holiness. He has to be totally unique, the only one of his kind, in a class by himself, so to speak. He shares his glory with no one. Now, we recognize this, but we often miss the understanding that God's jealousy arises out of his infinite love for us. God simply loves us too much to allow us to worship other things, to allow us to settle for something that's unreal, something that will not, that cannot satisfy. We are created with a need and a requirement to worship. Pascal wrote that because of the fall, we have an infinite abyss, as he describes it, in our lives. This uh, emptiness that we try in vain to fill with everything around us, but that can ultimately only be filled by God himself. From this, we get the idea of having a God-shaped hole in our lives, something that can only be filled with God himself. Augustine of Hippo writes, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. 
The text we're using for today's lesson comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we can see God begins his ten words, the Decalogue, what we call the Ten Commandments, with two very specific commands. First, he says, I am the Lord your God. You are to have no other gods besides or before me. And then he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You're not to bow down to them or to worship them. So, in today's lesson, we want to look at several points about these two commandments. What exactly are these commandments forbidding? And then, why are they forbidden? What is so wrong or harmful about them? And then finally, how do we see these commands broken in our modern culture? How do we know if we are breaking these commands? So, let's begin with the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You are to have no other gods besides me. So, what is forbidden? What offense is being described here? First, we need to understand, this command is not about rejecting God, refusing to worship God. What we are being warned against is bringing in other gods to receive worship and obedience that should be God's alone. John Kilner writes, Idolatry often does not, it, does not present itself as an either-or. Most often, an idol doesn't challenge God directly. Rather, it insinuates that it can thrive in one's life alongside devotion to God. The literal meaning of worship is to find worthy. When we have other gods, we are finding other things just as worthy as we find God Himself. We are looking to other things that are not God to fulfill the role that only God Himself is to play in our lives. We are looking to them to provide what God should be providing for us. And so we find them worthy. We give to them our loyalty and obedience. We give them equal footing with God. So we, in essence, are telling God, you are not enough by yourself. I need something or someone else to meet all of my needs to, to make me fully happy to complete my life. Jesus explained what this means to have only one God by restating, restating this command in terms of who we love. When asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus answers, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we do this, when we love God with all there is of us, we have no room in our lives for other gods. Now, we often get confused about what this means, to love with the whole heart. We're not creating some kind of intense, overwhelming feeling. We're not creating this emotion that sweeps over us just with sheer intensity. This type of love is more of a mindset. It's an attitude, really an act of the will. Our emotions are going to rise and fall. 
it's impossible for them to remain at a fever pitch all the time. There are going to be times when our emotions are going to to dim. They're going to lessen. But to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, it means that we recognize God as the most precious, the most desirable, the most valuable of anything that exists. It's a choice to set our hearts on Him, to make Him our first priority, to recognize He is everything we need for our contentment, our satisfaction, our joy. It is to be content with God alone. Now, this is not that we have nothing else in our lives that we enjoy, but we realize our lives are complete, even if these things are missing, if we have God. And so we need nothing else to complete us. Now, why is this forbidden? What is so offensive about this command that God utterly forbids it and prescribes the most severe penalties for it? To allow other gods would be to diminish the holiness of God. God's holiness, His ultimate Godness, His total perfection and glory, all of this is manifested in the fact He is the only. His holiness is revealed by His exclusiveness. He has no peers, no rivals. He alone is God, and He shares His divinity with no others. He is completely other and separate in a class by Himself, which means He is infinitely rare, infinitely valuable or worthy. So, if we consider others as worthy of our worship, we are denying that holiness belongs to God alone. We are reducing God to a level shared with other things. To have another God really shows the ultimate in ungratefulness. It's really the peak of ingratitude. We owe everything to the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness of God. So how then can we turn around and recognize another God? This ingratitude feeds our selfishness and our greed. The attraction of polytheism, of having many gods, was that it allowed the worshiper to pick and to choose the gods that they wanted. It allowed them to select a God that best benefited them, that met their needs. So, polytheism keeps worship revolving around you. In reality, by worshiping other gods that you choose, you are enshrining yourself as the ultimate God. So, the self is enthroned and kept in charge. How do we see this commandment then in our world today? This commandment to have no other gods besides the one true God. Idols really are the result of a misplaced dependency. When we put our trust in something else, something rather than God. Martin Luther writes, A God is that to which we look for all, and in which we find refuge in every time of need. So, when we worship an idol, we're not talking about bowing down in front of a bronze Buddha or burning incense to a statue. In our world, when we worship a false god, when we find another god worthy, we are looking to this god to to receive what we should be receiving from the one true God. For example, God is to be the source of our safety, our security. He is the one who provides for our needs. 
we set up a false god when we trust in other things to provide this security. You know, we may look to our job, our retirement plan, our savings account, maybe even the government, but we're looking for something else to to make us secure in life, to make us feel safe. God is to be the source of our fulfillment, to be what completes us. Now, if we begin looking to other things as the source of fulfillment, we make gods of these. Often it may be other people in our lives. You know, we look to a boyfriend, girlfriend, a husband, a wife, uh, some kind of romantic relationship that we feel will complete us, will make our lives fulfilled. Maybe we turn to social media. You know, we seek to find fulfillment through the lives that we live online, the number of tweets that we get, you know, uh, the number of likes that we get, how many followers we have, you know, the number of our Facebook friends. You know, all of this can become a God where we seek to find our fulfillment. God is supposed to be the source of our joy, our happiness, you know, what gives our life its zest, its flavor. But we find ourselves looking to idols instead. You know, many might turn to alcohol or other drugs, you know, to make their lives exciting, to make their lives pleasurable. Or it may be something that we consider far more innocent. It might be shopping. It might be food. It might be making an idol of our hobbies, our amusements. But God is the one who is supposed to provide our sense of worth. What gives our lives value? If we're looking to the things that we accumulate, our cars, our houses, uh, any of our toys that we have, we are making idols of these things. Now, we have plenty of good things in our lives, things that we enjoy, uh, things that we take pleasure in. Scripture tells us that God desires for us to have good things. It says that God delights in giving, and every good and perfect gift is from God Himself. So, we are not talking here about stripping everything out of our lives, about living like a monk, sitting in a bare room, praying all day long. So how do we recognize when something, even something good in itself, is becoming an idol? How do we know when something is beginning to replace God in our lives? The key characteristic of idolatry is it takes God's place as the aspiration, as the standard of our lives. People set their hearts on idols, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 6. They treasure idols, from Isaiah 44, 9. They trust in idols, from Habakkuk. They yoke themselves to idols, in Numbers 25. So, we can identify things in our lives that may be idols by asking ourselves some key questions. What is it that I would hate to lose? What thing might ruin my life if I lost it? Is there something that I really can't imagine being happy without? Something I feel like I could not just make it without? You know, what am I willing to do to keep this thing in my life? What sacrifices would I make? You know, am I willing to compromise my ethical, my moral standards? You know, am I willing to ignore something that God has said so that I can keep this thing in my life? How is this affecting me? 
Is it keeping me from other obligations I need to fulfill? Is it keeping me from being uh, a, a good father or mother or, or uh, wife or husband? You know, is it consuming the majority of my time? Is it taking an outside, outsized portion of my income? You know, is it keeping me from paying my tithe? Is it harming my devotional life? You know, uh, if I cannot do this thing, if circumstances prevent me, you know, do I become angry? So when we look at these questions, it helps us to identify, are there things in my life that I've really begun to look for to take the place of God himself? Now, the second commandment that God gives here dealing with idolatry is, you are not to make for yourself an image a carving in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth or in the waters, and you're not to bow down or worship to them. So when we look at what God is forbidding here, uh, a lot of times we tend to confuse this with the first commandment. Now, this is not a command to not make a carved image uh, to represent a pagan god. God is telling them, you are not to make a carved image to represent me. So the idea here is not necessarily about worshiping a false god. That was forbidden by the first commandment. The second commandment deals with more how we are to worship God himself. We are not to create a carved image and use it in our worship, not even if this image is used to worship the one true God. So what is so offensive about this, about carving an image of God? Deuteronomy 4.15 says that when the Israelites, when God appeared to the Israelites, they saw no form of any kind. And so therefore, they weren't to corrupt themselves by making an image of God. God wanted them to understand. He was unlike any other God they had ever heard of. He was holy, one of a kind, totally unique. God would not be worshipped in the same way uh, treated in the same way as these false pagan gods. Calvin tells us that by giving an invisible deity a visible form, that idols replace the true invisible divine reality with a false physical reality. In other words, they are presenting a lie about God, a false picture of who God is. A carved animal can only represent one particular attribute of God. For example, when the Israelites made a golden calf, they were thinking about God's power, God's strength. But this leaves off every other aspect of who God is. You know, we recognize God as existing in, in opposite strength sometimes. God is infinite and yet transcendent. He is just, but he's also merciful. He is powerful and yet extremely gentle. So when we create an idol, we're focusing on one attribute of God. Idols also, these physical objects, they show a lack of trust in God. For the Israelites, they could not believe that God was with them unless he showed himself physically present. Exodus 32, verse 1, they tell Aaron, Make us a God, because we know not what has become of this Moses, 
make us gods who may go before us. So they're saying, you know, we, we no longer have Moses here with us. We don't see God himself here. We need a God that we can see, that we can touch. And so make us this calf to represent God. Now, idols, these physical objects, also showed a desire to manipulate God. When we had a carved image, it allowed us to hold God himself in our hands. We could take God with us wherever we went. We, would, we could make sure that God blessed us because we would have the presence of God. So, Calvin sums up idolatry by saying, Idolatry is the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Now, we're doing all of this so that we can be our own God, so that we can maintain sovereignty over our lives and our decisions. Uh, we want idols so that we can pick and choose the attributes of God that we want to emphasize, the attributes that we like. We ignore those aspects of God that we don't like. We want an idol so that we can put our faith in something we can see and touch and experience with our physical senses. We want an idol so that we can manipulate, so that we can control God into doing what we want Him to do. So, how do we see this in our society today? Now, we actually can find the attraction of a carved image, a physical idol, even in our modern world. You know, look at sometimes how we treat Bibles themselves. Uh, we make people swear on the Bible, convinced that the presence of the Bible will keep them from lying. You know, if you ever watch a movie about vampires, the idea that a cross can ward off the vampire. Uh, we have tele-evangelists tele that will send you a prayer cloth that supposedly has uh, divine powers. And so we still can see physical objects that are treated as idols that are used to manipulate God. But most of the time, we are not running around with a physical idol. What we are doing is we're elevating a philosophy, a motive uh, that backs up this idolatry. This, this idea of self-centered worship, worship where we are supposedly worshiping God, but in reality, we are worshiping a God that we have made into our own image, emphasizing what we like, ignoring what we don't like, you know, adopting a religion where we trust in ourselves, you know, where what we see and what we grasp is more important, a system where we manipulate God. All of this is how we see idolatry in our lives today. Now, as Calvin says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. When we create a philosophy that stresses, for example, God's love, God's forgiveness, without taking into account God's righteousness, God's holiness, Julie Slattery refers to this false idol as the heresy of love. She writes, Many Christians make decisions on what God allows based on a belief that a loving God would want them to be happy and fulfilled. She writes, I've met with women who use this idea to justify sex outside of marriage, to justify having affairs, even to using mommy porn. I remember meeting with one married woman who was convinced God had brought another man into her life because God knew how lonely she was in her marriage. 
She and her lover would pray together, would read the Bible together, all the while they were justifying their affair. So she found verses in the Bible to remind her of God's compassion and love, but skipped over passages that demanded holiness, that demanded self-denial. So we can see making an idol when we pick and choose those attributes of God that we want to emphasize. We also exchange the truth of God for a lie when we believe only in what we can hold on to with our hands. You know, when we reject what God has told us to believe. For example, Scripture tells us it's better to give than to receive. The meek will inherit the earth. The poor are those who are blessed. But what do we do? We act like if we can't have things, you know, in our own hands, that we can't grab hold of things and possess them and use them, that God is not going to take care of us. We exchange the truth of God for a lie when we view religion as a way to manipulate God. You know, the idea that I can separate my life into religious and secular spheres. I can keep God locked away in the religious part. I go to church on Sunday. I pay my tithe. I follow the basic commandments. But I'm free to run the rest of my life the way I want to. Uh, I'm keeping God as kind of a backup. We treat God more or less as a genie in a bottle. You know, I keep God locked away in his own sphere. I bring him out into my everyday life when I need something out of him. And so this false idol, the idea that I can manipulate God. So as we can see, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We are following idols when we adopt these philosophies and these attitudes. You know, this idea that I can make a decision for God at some point that I can get saved, but then I can go ahead to live my life however I please and depend upon God's grace to carry me through. We are manipulating God by treating repentance and salvation as a get-out-of-hell-free card. We are cheapening God's grace. So, how do we recognize when we fashioned an idol, when we've made our religion into something that serves ourselves? Well, as we've said, when we accept parts of Scripture, but we reject other parts that we don't like, uh, when we rationalize our actions, when we justify, you know, why this may appear wrong, but it really isn't. It's wrong when other people do it, but when I'm doing it, there's a reason for it. We recognize that we have fashioned an idol when we compare what we do with what others do and feel that somehow what we do is just not so bad. You know, throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, God uses the prophets to warn the Israelites, idolatry is useless. Don't get sucked into this. Idolatry will not, idolatry cannot provide the things that you are looking for. You know, we started this lesson by looking at the cargo cults in the South Pacific, and we see these islanders worshiping, you know, their airplanes made out of bamboo and brush and twigs, uh, making these airplane noises sounding like jet planes in the hope that this is going to bring them what they need, what they want. And we know it can't work because it's all based on a false reality. But then we go out into our own lives and we create these idols that are based just as much on a false reality 
we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we begin looking to these idols, these idols that cannot provide what God himself will provide for us. So as we go through this next week, you know, don't dismiss these first two commandments and think, oh, idolatry, that was something that was way, way back then. I don't need to worry about that. Idolatry is alive and well in our world, and we have to be on the guard against it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the warnings that you provided against idolatry. We thank you that you love us too much to see us waste our lives following these false realities. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the ultimate reality, that you provide everything that we need. We give you the praise in your name. Amen.